The following is a sermon from Grace City Church in Denver, Colorado. Grace City exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. For more info, visit gracecitydenver.com. Tonight we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, 7-11 through 11, if you want to follow along. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the word of the Lord. So every handful of years, we have this dilemma where Ash Wednesday happens on the same day as Valentine's Day. And I say it's a dilemma because between this, um, how should I call it, a commercial holiday versus a liturgical or a religious holiday that has been around for many hundreds of years longer than what anyone has celebrated a a St. Valentine's Day, it's difficult when those two things happen on the same evening. It's difficult because those commemorate not only different things, but they're celebrated in very different ways. And, and you know this, that at least in American culture, with our kids going off to school, you know, with the Valentine for everyone, which means the little, like, I love you, or I like you, or check this box, or this box, plus the candy in the bags, and the toys, and the different things. Even adults are thinking about chocolates, and cards, and flowers, and mylar balloons, and the little chalk hearts that say really profound things like, be mine, and you are hot, and one, four, three. And we turn to Ash Wednesday, which of all nights of the year, as I've introduced, is about mortality and repentance and remembering not only our need of a Savior, but our provision of a Savior in Jesus Christ. So one tends to be lighthearted and glossy and fun and sugary, and the other tends to be, by intentional design, fairly somber and contemplative. We are joining with Jesus in some of his suffering and working through the annual liturgy of the church, as I said, for hundreds of years. By the way, King Solomon would be proud of you for coming tonight because he writes in Ecclesiastes 7.2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And what he's saying is there's actually a certain wisdom to putting yourself in situations where you are confronted with your own mortality. There's a wisdom to thinking about the fact that this brief physical life will come to an end, and that the way we live should be transformed by the reality of our eventual death of the body. But it is Valentine's Day, okay? So I want us to consider tonight, I'm going to bring these two themes together, and I want us to think about the way that the biblical theme of love harmonizes with the beginning of Lent and what we're celebrating. And I want to kind of just walk you through the redemptive story of the Bible 
and just point out a couple key things. So the Bible story obviously begins with creation in Genesis 1. And the Bible says that God has made the world and everything in it as an overflow of his love. God is not creating out of loneliness. He's not creating out of need or desperation. He's not creating out of manipulation. He's creating out of love. And that's why everything that he makes is good. And it's true. And it's beautiful. The first humans who are made in the image of God were designed to find their identity as well as happiness and contentment, satisfaction, joy, blessing in relationship with God. You may know from Genesis 1 and 2 that there in the midst of that Garden of Eden, there is the tree of life because humankind was designed to live forever. Life was intended to go on and on with flourishing and joy and goodness and bounty and every good word you could think to fill in. This was God's creation. Now, this isn't written in the early chapters of Genesis, but Jesus would later say when asked about this, and someone comes and says, Rabbi, what would you say in the whole law, in the whole old covenant, what is the greatest commandment? What's the most important thing? And Jesus really goes back to the very beginning, the perfect design, and he says, the greatest commandment is this, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. So all Adam and Eve had to do in this perfect creation was to love and trust God and their life, their beautiful life, their blessed life would have gone on and on forever. Simply adding generations of God followers, God lovers, people who loved God, fellowshiped with God, talked with God face to face and enjoyed God and God enjoyed them. And the big point of what I just said is simply this, we were made for communion with God and we were made for eternal life, but something went terribly wrong. And that's in act two of the story, which starts in Genesis three, and that's known as the fall. And I'm sure probably everyone here knows the story. Just to simplify, the adversary Satan comes to the first woman, he shows up in that garden, he convinces her, don't trust God, don't love God, be your own God, do your own will. You're smart enough to figure this out by yourself. And here's the really insidious thing that the adversary did in the garden on that day, is he got Eve to question the love of God. Does God really love you? Is God really as good as he could be in his affection toward you, Eve? Because he's actually withholding something good from you. And he got her to believe it. He also did something else and he got her to shift her love, her affection from God to something God had forbidden. And she starts looking at this thing and she thinks, well, that doesn't look so bad. In fact, it looks good. And she uses a pile of words to describe how this thing that she's forbidden to indulge in is actually, it looks good. It, I'm sure it tastes good. It's going to make her wise. It's a beautiful and good thing. And she starts defining reality on her own terms. And she gave some to Adam as well. And this is called the fall because in that instant, 
everything good and beautiful that God had designed broke. Because instead of loving and pursuing fellowship with God, they hid. And instead of pursuing love and commitment to one another, they immediately start pointing fingers. And instead of enjoying only blessing their sin, their shifting of love brought about a curse. There would be pain and there would be brokenness where before there had been only health and unity and flourishing. There would be adversity in place of peace and there would be death in place of life. And this is where it's in the curse in Genesis 3 verse 19 that we're introduced to these famous words. That's why I'm going all the way back here. God says this to Adam and Eve, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And the big simple point of what I just said there is we lost communion with God and we lost eternal life because of our failure to love and trust God. In other words, we all die because of our failure to love and trust God. But thanks be to God, part of what we celebrate on this night and on every night and on every Sabbath is that that's not the end of the story, is it? Because Act 3 is this redemption. Act 3 is this, how is God going to fix the fact that we took everything good, we took eternal life, and we threw it all away for a piece of fruit? And we've all thrown it away for different things. And I, if you're like me, you're probably like, you know, if that were me in the garden and you can kind of re-engineer and think I wouldn't have done that, but we would have, I would have. And there's a redemption. And the most famous verse in Scripture, John 3.16, says it this way, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So he's sending his son in love to give back the gift that was lost because of our own decision. And you, you hear this startling contrast in Act 2 and 3, because in Act 2, we failed to love, and that led to death. In Act 3, God loved, and that led to life, eternal life. Okay, so let's go back to 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11 for just a few moments. Let's go back to this text that was just read for us. And John says, notice, God is love. And he goes on, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. It's a fancy way of saying back then, how do we know God's love? How do we experience God's love? How was God's love put on display, as it were, for us as human beings who were broken and separated from him? And he's like, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. He says, in this, the love of God was put on display that God sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation simply means the means of forgiveness. 
And what John is telling us is, is God doesn't merely forgive, as important as that is. He says God sent his son to be the means of forgiveness. And if I could just illustrate the contrast between those two things, I'm, just imagine someone's out golfing with their coach. They're playing a round of golf, and they've got a golf coach, and they slice a shot or they hook a shot, I guess depending on whether they're right or left-handed, right? And that shot goes through your window, just shatters your window. And the coach turns to the golfer and says, you know, you didn't, you didn't follow my instructions about that, that angle of your backswing, but I forgive you. You didn't listen well. You didn't copy what I asked you to do, but I forgive you. That would be a type of forgiveness. But imagine you come out of your home and you engage with the same bad golfer and you say, don't worry about the window. I'll take care of it. I forgive you. Well, that, that broken window, well, to put it like this, what is the cost to the coach to forgive? Really nothing. What is the cost to you to forgive? I don't know, $700, dollars $1,000 to replace that window yourself? And you're both forgiving in a sense, but one of you is providing the means of forgiveness. The, you're, you're, you're paying the cost. And here's what I want you to hear in what I just explained to you. God doesn't say to sinners, don't worry about it. Your sin is no big deal. I, I love you so much. It's going to be fine. What he does say in a text like 1 John 4 is, I've sent my son to pay the price so that you can be truly forgiven. And what was the price? Or to ask it another way, what did our sin deserve? What was it going to take as a payment or as a consequence for our sin? And the Bible says the wages, the payment of sin is death. In Adam, all die because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. By the way, if you're still in 1 John 4, just look back, uh, and I love this, because you got John 3.16 and you got 1 John 3.16. So easy to remember, but look at 1 John 3.16, how it says this. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. So if you're asking in this redemptive act three, not just, oh, it's cool that we got life instead of the death we deserved, you're asking how did we get that life instead of death? Well, the answer is right here. Jesus came in love and he took our place. John says he laid down his life for us. And that's the beauty of this communion that we just took together. Jesus saying this bread is now forever in the church, symbolic of my body broken for you. This cup of wine at the Passover meal is now symbolic, not of the blood of a lamb, but of the blood of Jesus himself poured out for the forgiveness of many. How, how did we get life instead of death? It's because the justice we deserved fell on him so that we get mercy. Or to put it differently, the curse that we deserve fell on him so we get the blessing that he deserved. And the big point of this third point, this big point of redemption is, yes, God made you for communion with him and forever life. 
But our sin, our lack of love messed that up and we lost communion with God and we lost life itself. But in redemption, in Act 3, both communion with God and eternal life are restored by God's sacrificial love for us. So conclusion, here at the beginning of the Lent season, we're reminding ourselves why did Jesus have to come for us? But even more specifically, why did he have to live this life and suffer and come to Good Friday where he's betrayed and abandoned and beaten and lied about and scourged and nailed to a tree? And why then Easter? Why did Jesus go through all that? And the answer is because he had to in order to give us fellowship and to give us life back. So we're remembering at the same time our mortality, and you can go to a really dark place if you do that. I know people that used to do, they, they would pre-sell kind of a funeral package and plan and say that most people, as they come in to start thinking through a casket or a cremation or flowers or who do I want to be there and what do I want this service to like, would break down sobbing because they'd never thought about the fact before of like, I'm really going to die. And it brings a sense of reality into their present that hopefully transforms the way they live here. But, but God didn't come, and Ash Wednesday is not about parking there on our mortality and, and groveling and, and even being afraid or struggling with doubt. It's meant to resolve in this love and sacrifice of Jesus. We need a Savior, and He is that Savior. So we're doing all of that tonight. We don't park just on, I'm such a sinner, and I need to repent, and I need to repent I need to repent, and I need to repent again tomorrow. And as Martin Luther said, my whole life is supposed to be about repentance. Well, yes, it is. And you can accept that as a way of just kind of this, this forever navel-gazing introspection, which is unhealthy, of just, have I done anything else? And I'm a terrible worm, and I'm scum, and how could God love someone like me versus saying, I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. And where I'm landing is my focus is on Him. And that's what I hope to do tonight. Just practically, maybe for the next 40 days, because I know some of you are looking for practical Lent practices, and we sent some of those out in our e-news. If you missed that, you can look on our website and search for that in the uh, devotionals. St. Augustine, an early church father in North Africa, said, the essence of sin is disordered loves. To put it differently, there's really no sin you commit without first failing to love God the way God has invited you to and or failing to love a brother or sister, a neighbor, the way God has called you to. The essence of sin is disordered loves. So what I'd invite you to do as you go through this next six weeks, this next 40 days plus the weekend feasting, Get in a habit of evaluating your life through this lens of what we've talked about. And it's healthy to think, 
who or what am I loving right now? How is that love being expressed right now? Like, how do I know that I've set my affection on someone or something, maybe not instead of God, but in place of God in the sense that there's a disorder? I'm treasuring something else more than God. And I think when you sin, a lot of times you would be like, well, I still love God. And I believe that. I believe you do. But you ever feel like, I love God in the big picture? And in that moment, if I'm being honest, I was compelled by self-love or by an affection or treasuring of something else. So there's this wise practice of saying, if, if all sin and therefore my mortality is linked to a disordered love, then I want to use this time to say, Lord, when, where, how, why are my loves disordered? What does that look like in my life? Who did I fail to love today that you've called me to love? What did that disorder look like? And confess that to the Lord. And confess it to others that you hurt. And practice repentance. By the way, I think, um, as, as some of you, and don't raise your hands, but some of you are thinking through something to fast from over the next 40 days, right? And I've heard, like, I'm going to fast from alcoholic beverages. I'm going to fast from social media. I'm going to fast from caffeine. I'm going to fast from video games or TV or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of things that I've heard. And that's between you and God. You don't have to tell me what you're fasting from or if you're not fasting from something at all. I think a brilliant thing to do with this text would be, Lord, I want to fast from something that by fasting from it, it will increase my love for you. Because my goal is not this self-flagellation of I'm fasting from caffeine and it's so hard because my body wants coffee and what's so bad with coffee? And well, nothing's bad with coffee. Coffee's amazing. So you're beating yourself up. Instead of saying something like, if I fasted from social media in a specific way, as I'm thinking for the next 40 days, that gets rid of a little time suck, but it also changes the way you interact with people. Because instead of it being the, the rage of Twitter or just the, the competition and the outward superficiality of some of these others where you just you feel envious of certain people and then you feel better than other certain people. But taking that time and saying, Lord, how can you increase my love for you? And how can you increase my love for others around me with what I'm doing with this next six weeks leading up to Holy Week? So acknowledge that disordered loves have broken your fellowship with God, have, have literally put an end to your physical life, and simultaneously focus on Jesus, who gives you that communion back and gives you the eternal life back. And it's with him, and it's forever, and it's going to be better than we could ever dream. Because we'll get to forever focus on the Jesus who is the embodiment and the revelation of all of God's love to us. You just listened to a recording of a sermon from Grace City Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope you can join us in person soon. Thanks for listening.
The Lord bless you and keep you. Amen.